welcome to the Christchurch Winston-Salem podcast. To learn more about Christchurch, visit us at ChristchurchWS.org. Subscribe to our podcast at our website, iTunes, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening. Please remain standing and pray with me. Come Holy Spirit, now we pray and open the teaching of scriptures. Lord, we are, we would stand with the whole people of God as we face the water gate and hear Ezra expound Torah and have the Levites move among us, giving us the sense of the word. Lord, come and open the scriptures to us, we pray. Lord, please come and unstop our ears. Take away the idols of our hearts that keep us from receiving the truth of the scriptures, Lord. I pray that we might come under uh, the authority of God's word with humility and thankfulness this morning. Please grant me clarity of speech, Lord, and I pray in Jesus' name that my words would be pleasing to you and beneficial and edifying to this congregation. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Um, I've been feeling kind of feisty this week. Uh, something came up. I told Lisa, I said, you know, I wish I, was still, I wish I was still young enough to fight. She said, you're Scots-Irish. You're never too old to fight. No, but I, I think that this might be a very important sermon for some of us this morning. It may be a little feisty. Um, it may be very clarifying to us. In fact, it may help you decide that we at Christ Church, to quote St. Obi-Wan Kenobi, <laughs> are not the droids you're looking for, that we are those kind of Christians. Now, why is that? Well, it's because this is a sermon about the Bible. Now, in one sense, every sermon at Christ Church is about the Bible. What are you preaching about this week, Father Ben? Oh, something out of the Bible. It's always the answer. But in, but this one, this sermon is not just biblical. Get ready. It's meta-biblical, meta-biblical. And what am I talking about? Well, two of our Bible readings this morning were, rid- were literally about, our Bible readings were about reading the Bible. Did you see? That's the meta move there. We've got Bible readings about reading the Bible. The text from Nehemiah 8 was about Ezra, the priest, reading the Bible to Jews who had returned from exile and rebuilt the wall of Jerusalem in or around the year 445 B.C. And the gospel text we heard this morning is about Jesus reading the Bible in the synagogue in Nazareth Nazareth, as he inaugurates his ministry. And for us to focus on the place of the Bible in our faith, per se, could not have happened at a better time because one of, and I'm convinced of this, one of the major contributing factors for people, particularly young people, leaving the Christian faith and becoming nuns, N-O-N-E-S, those having no religious affiliation, is that they have no grounding, no deep familiarity with, and spend no serious time on a daily basis reading and studying God's Word, the Bible. Here's what happens. Listen, here's what happens. If we are not spending time every day reading and studying God's Word, if we are not doing that, then the story of God, 
the narrative of salvation, the person and character of God revealed in Jesus Christ necessarily become more and more implausible, more and more unbelievable. Now, why is that? Doesn't that just show the weakness of Christianity? No. This is because we cannot live, listen, we cannot live in a narratival, or narratival if you prefer, both pronunciations are okay, we cannot live in a narratival vacuum. We cannot live in a narrativeless vacuum. We are a people who literally cannot live. Humanity is a race that cannot live, cannot exist without a story. Did you, do you realize this? I was thinking about this week. Even when we are, even when you and I are asleep, our random neuron firings, which constitute our dreams, are narratives. They may be bizarre but there's still stories. And when you wake up and try to tell the story of what you dreamed about, you realize just how weird they really were. But there's still stories. We interface with reality through stories. And every day, listen, every day our ears, our hearts, and our minds are assaulted with an alien narrative, a different yet persuasive story that appeals to our flesh that is, our fallen and sinful natures, and seduces us to live independently from, seduces us to live independently from and in rebellion towards the living God. This has been the fundamental structure, excuse me, the fundamental struggle since the dawning of the human race, the temptation to be drawn away from God's revealed word, the temptation to be drawn away from God's revealed word. What do we hear in Genesis chapter 3, verse 1? Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field. Spent a lot of time on Pinterest doing those crafts. Sorry, just seeing if you're listening. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, listen, did God actually say, what is that? That is an attack on the word of God. Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? The very thing that led to the downfall of the human race was the temptation to disregard the word of God. And ever since Jesus established his church, The church has likewise wrestled with heresies, with competing narratives, the deceptive voice calling us away from trusting God's word and asking us, did God actually say? And that's why it is providential and salutary that we come to the scriptures from Nehemiah 8 and Luke chapter 4 this morning. And I want to take a very quick cursory look at both of these scriptures as a means of seeing the importance of God's word in our life as a church and as individuals. And then I want to make a kind of, yes, a feisty application. So if you have a moment, just turn back with me to Nehemiah chapter 8. Look at Nehemiah chapter 8. It's right there in your pew Bibles. The number is on the page and you're on your song sheet. It's 400 and something, I think. 403. Thank you, Ty. You know, this is how, you know, this is one of the things that really makes this, this service, uh, much more engaging is that Ty Rice is here <laughs> to help with audience participation. So look at Nehemiah 
chapter 8. And here's what's going on in the passage we just heard read very well, I might say, by Lisa Breeding this morning. The year is around 445 B.C., and Nehemiah, with the permission of the Persian king Artaxerxes, has returned to the city of Jerusalem in order to rebuild the wall of that city. Walls were not just important in the ancient world for protection, but actually indicated that this is a legitimate city. This is a for real city. We are a real and defined people group. We are a polis because we have a wall around our town. The rebuilding of the wall was a way of overcoming, so this is why it's significant, it's not just to protect the people who live in Jerusalem, it is a way of overcoming the shame and disgrace of the exiles who had returned. Why would I even apply that those terms, shame and disgrace? Well, if you were to go all the way back to Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 3, you would hear this. Um, Nehemiah is speaking to his kinsmen who have come to give a report on the condition of the exiles who have returned to, to Jerusalem. And he, it says, and they said to me, and they said to ne- Nehemiah, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. And what are the next words out of the mouth of those giving the report? Great trouble and shame. What are they thinking of when they think of great trouble and shame? They say the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. But the rebuilding of that physical wall is actually not what reconstitutes the returned exiles as a genuine community, as the people of God. Instead, it's what happened just a very few days following the completion of the wall. And it's what we hear in Nehemiah 8, 1 and 2 And listen what it says. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses. The Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the Torah, the law, the scriptures before the assembly, both men and women and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. Here is what restored, here's what reconstituted the community of Israel. It was not temple worship. Temple worship had been going on since the temple had been completed some time before. It was not even the rebuilding of the wall around Jerusalem. Listen, it was the reading and teaching of God's word. That's what reconstituted the people of God. Now, many people... And treat Christian community as if it were a commodity. I hear this all the time. People say, oh, I'm looking for Christian community as if there is like a canister of Christian community that I dispense community from. And if I don't give them the cool kind of community, the hip community, you know, then they go find, try to find it somewhere else. Give me some of that community. And it has to be cool like me. But listen, brothers and sisters, all genuine community, all genuine Christian community flows as rivulets from the water gate where we gather as one man to hear the scriptures read and taught. 
And the community that is gathered and created by the Word of God is marked by worship and repentance and joy. I'm not going to spend a long time expositing this, but just listen to verse 6 of Nehemiah chapter 8. And Ezra blessed the Lord. Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. And all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. That's worship. And then in verse 9, Nehemiah and Ezra said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. That reminds me of Josiah the king. When the law of God, the Torah, had been found, when the temple was going through a restoration, some people who were working on the temple had found the law of God. It hadn't been read in who knows how long. They brought it to Josiah. Josiah the king began to read it, and it says that he wept. In repentance. It's basically, holy smokes, we hadn't been doing any of this stuff. That's repentance. And then in verse 10, then he said to them, Nehemiah said, go your way, eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready for this day is holy to our Lord and do not be grieved for the joy of the Lord is your strength. That is joy. Here's the point. Genuine Christian community is created and sustained by the Word of God. The Christian community that de-emphasizes the centrality of the Bible, the Christian community that gets ashamed of the Bible, the Christian community that wishes it had a loose-leaf version of Scripture so that they could take the parts out of the binder that offend them, that, that community will cease to be an authentic worshiping community It will not experience genuine repentance, and it certainly will lose its access to the joy of the Lord. Now, very quickly, look with uh, me at Luke chapter 4, again, beginning, uh, I think, at verse 16, Luke 4, 16. This is the very beginning of Jesus' public ministry in Luke. He's been baptized by John in the Jordan. He was tempted out in the desert for 40 days. Now now he has returned to Nazareth. Nazareth. Have a hard time saying that. It's the old King James way of saying it. Nazareth. And he is, he is inaugurating his, his ministry as Israel's redeemer. This is where the public mission of Jesus kicks off. So what does Jesus do to initiate to instigate his ministry. Verse 16, And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and the recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus reads the Bible and says, that's what I'm here to do. How does he begin his ministry? He begins it in God's Word. He reads from the Scriptures and he says, that's what I'm here to do. Jesus' ministry and mission are defined by Holy Scripture. Now, the application for us this morning is that here, this is critical. 
All authentic mission and ministry are defined by the Word of God. If it cannot be supported by God's Word, it is for another public service organization to be doing. We are founded in Scripture. We do not have a mandate for anything we do as a church apart from God's Word. This focus, this is where the feisty part starts. This focus on the centrality of the Bible is a pressing issue today because both evangelical and mainline churches, both church circles, evangelical and mainline, and probably the Roman church as well, in those circles there is a movement that refers to itself, a movement that refers to itself as progressive Christianity, which prima facie is concerning in that it is appealing to a current secular political movement in its self-description. By the way, uh, avoidance of political language is why I avoid using the term conservative Christianity. Instead, I use the term traditional or classical or orthodox Christianity. But I think that progressive Christianity, and again, this is a self-styled term, is actually a, a more accurate description of that term would be revisionist Christianity, a a Christianity that revises what has been laid down in the scriptures and the creeds. Now, using their own terminology, now, progressive Christianity is really nothing but the warmed-up leftovers of late 19th and early 20th century liberal, again, their own self-description, liberal Protestantism. Its key characteristic, here, here, listen, this is important. Its key characteristic is that it is a form of so-called Christianity that is selectively unmoored, disconnected from the authority of the Bible at exactly those points that are most distasteful to the spirit of the age. I need to repeat that. That's a mouthful. It is a form of so-called Christianity that is selectively unmoored from the authority of the Bible at exactly those points that are most distasteful to the spirit of the age. Now, what do I mean about the spirit of the age, the zeitgeist, if you will? Well, one instance I saw uh, this past week, one instance of the spirit of the age was revealed just this past week when CNN commentator Clay Kane referred to a Christian school's teaching regarding human sexuality. He declared that this Christian school's position, which is directly drawn from the teaching of Jesus and the apostles, he referred to it as disgusting and a brand of hate. And all the progressive Christians nodded their heads along and said, tisk tisk. We also think the things that Jesus taught are very unchristian and that Jesus would never agree with what Jesus taught. Or as one progressive Christian woman told, told me in a seminary class now some 30 years ago regarding the Bible, I wish we could just throw this thing out the window. Now, wait a second, you say, I'm a progressive Christian. You're offending me. Ooh, offending. (laughs) Yes, I get offended all the time, but it doesn't matter. 
Well, listen, my prayer, literally, I prayed this uh, as I was preparing this sermon. I pray by the grace of God to only offend you about exactly the right thing. Not secondary, secondary things or matters of mere human opinion, but on exactly the right thing. You know, the cross, that kind of thing. If you are bristling at this, let me ask you, are you unashamed of the whole counsel of the Word of God? Or do you cherry-pick the bits of the Bible that don't offend the secular spirit of the age while discarding those that do? Oh, I'm a red-letter Christian, you boast. But doesn't that really mean that you have arrogated to yourself the authority to dispense with the vast majority of the Bible, you know, all those black letters? Here is a a quick, basic Christianity point. In Orthodox Christianity, the black letters are equally as authoritative as the red letters. The whole Bible, as we used to say, Genesis to Maps, Kever to Kever, in the words of the reformer Thomas Cramner, must be taken for a most sure ground and an infallible truth. And whatsoever cannot be grounded upon the same, touching our faith, is man's device, changeable and uncertain. You see, what may be happening here this morning is a call for you to repent. Stop conforming to the world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. 19th century novelist Elizabeth Rundle Charles wrote, If I I profess with the loudest voice and the clearest exposition every portion of the truth of God except precisely that little point which the world and the devil are at that moment attacking, I am not confessing Christ, however boldly I may be professing Christianity. Where the battle rages, the loyalty of the soldier is proved. And to be steady on all the battlefield besides is mere flight and disgrace to him if he flinches at that one point. Are you flinching, brothers and sisters, on the points of the teaching of Jesus that the world sees as deplorable and disgusting? Are you afraid that your enlightened friends would reject you if they knew you held those beliefs? You see, what is popularly called, this is important, listen closely, I might even repeat it. What is popularly called progressive Christianity is just a rest stop on the highway to apostasy. It is the last nostalgic speed bump you feel as you careen over the brink into unbelieving secularism. It is a, listen, it is a tepid theology that has been strained through the pelvis to extract everything that offends our godless cultural overlords or challenges our own disordered appetites and passions. Erstwhile, atheist Marxist historian Eugene Genovese quipped when reading the progressive Christians of his day, 
I have the warm feeling that I am in the company of fellow non-believers. Beloved, the returned exiles of Nehemiah's day were surrounded by hostile neighbors. The very existence of the community was tenuous. How will they be gathered and sustained? How does God reconstitute this post-exile community? It is through the reading and teaching of the Torah, the Word of God. And at the very beginning of His own public ministry, our Lord Jesus Christ declares His mission statement. And how does He do it? Jesus defines His ministry through the Word of God. We, too, are in a precarious position. The faithful Orthodox Christian community is seen as deplorable by the academy, the media, big business, and the political class, and yes, more and more by our own neighbors. If we are not being shaped by the narrative of Scripture, we will inevitably succumb to the secular postmodern narrative. If you are not daily saturated in the Word of God, and if there was only a way, if there was only a daily Bible reading plan that we could turn to, oh my goodness, wouldn't that be great? Oh, wait, wait a second. What's this? It's right here in the Book of Common Prayer. (laughs) Wonderful Anglican back there. If we are not shaped by the Word of God, the Christian narrative will become ever more implausible as it is drowned out by the competing futile claims of secularism. We cannot have Christian community apart from God's Word. We don't have a mission apart from God's Word. So this morning, I want to challenge you, when you are asked what kind of Christian you are, I would encourage and challenge you that with such Anglicans as Charles Simeon and John Wesley and good Bishop J.C. Ryle, and even, yes, your priest, I challenge you to boldly confess that you are a Bible Christian. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening. To learn more about Christ Church, visit us at ChristChurchWS.org. Subscribe to our podcast at our website, iTunes, or wherever you listen to podcasts. 